Hello, everyone. I hope you're excited for this session because it's really going to be a good one. We're very fortunate today to have Christian Patel from Polo join us. For those who don't know, Christian has a pretty interesting career so far. So he started in the world of sales as an enterprise SDR at Oracle. So kind of learned what enterprise means at one of the most enterprise companies out there, then like moved up to an AE role and then turned into the dark side of product uh, <laughs> at Apollo. And the part I'm the most excited about today is that he actually led the initiative of starting a product-led motion at Apollo at the time where it was very sales-led. So I think that's going to be the, the bulk of the conversation today. And I think it's, it's a really, really interesting and, and topical subject because a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to do PLG. So uh, Christian, thanks a ton for, uh, for joining us today. And I mean, maybe um, to get started, like, do you want to give us a quick run through as to what uh, Apollo does and, and kind of why, um, why you're excited to, to be there even after a couple of years? Yeah, definitely. And Francis, thanks for having me here. I've been following Mad Kudu for a while. So excited to finally, you know, build a relationship with y'all. Um, yeah, for those of you that don't know, Apollo is, is an all-in-one platform, a go-to-market platform that helps you find your ideal prospects and build a repeatable process to convert them into customers with intelligence that guides you each step of the way. So when I think about Apollo, um, you know, for any of those, any of you that are looking for roles elsewhere, um, some of the really cool things about Apollo is that we're the only company in our space that we feel is really trying to do right by our users first and foremost and letting our business come afterwards. So, you know, an example of that is our primary goals, our top three primary goals are one, making every customer wildly successful, two, engaging and re retaining our users, and three is increasing accessibility to world-class go-to-market tools to, you know, the SMB companies and companies that don't have as much to pay as, you know, say the VC-backed startup world. So um, that means that everything that we do is focused around helping make sure, making sure that we're delivering value to our customers in a way that is at a greater magnitude than some of our competition and also more consistently and constantly than, you know, what, where they find elsewhere. So yeah, it's really exciting that we're just actually building for our customers first and, first and foremost. Very cool. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, jumping right into the topic, uh, I'm super curious to hear what kind of started the initiative at Apollo? Like, why did the company decide to go from, you know, a sales-led motion to, you know, experimenting with uh, something product-led? Uh, and maybe we can start from there. Like, what, like how did that uh, become a thing and, and even a topic of uh, a conversation at Apollo? Yeah, definitely. Uh, big questions because there's the why and then there's the how. So I think the why is, you know, when we initially took this software to market around six to seven years ago, you're we finding that although we had some success in landing these mid-market enterprise companies, like we landed Lyft or Mercer, like before our Series A, we were getting a ton of interest from the SMB or like SME businesses that wanted a one-stop shop to build their go-to-market strategy on. So we, we realized that we had extreme product market fit within this segment because you know these SME companies, they didn't have the time or the budget or the ops teams to be able to cobble together a bunch of different tools that don't talk to each other and try to learn how to use them and set them up correctly to actually start building their go-to-market strategies. And when we look at these other tools, like, you know, the outreaches or Zoom Infos, the world, for example, like they weren't 
going after these companies in the first place. Like they set up their pricing and so did we at the time in a way where, you know, if you can't afford a $9,000 annual contract, you just cannot work with these companies, uh, like I said, including ourselves. So we realized that there was, you know, an extreme like underserved market in the SMB where we had extreme product market fit with the SMB as well um, in a way that's better than our competition. Whereas Zoom Info and Outreach might have been better for the mid-market at the time where the mid-market companies wanted a point solution that could be really good at solving one problem. And they weren't getting the full benefit from our edge, which is being an all-in-one solution where our, using our products in conjunction makes each product stronger. But the SMB companies really, really wanted that. But we didn't have, although we had product market fit, we didn't have product market channel fit. So although they really liked us, they didn't want to talk to sales rep. They didn't want to pay $9,000. They didn't want to be you know, locked into an annual contract. So it took a lot of, lot of internal debates and like conservative experimentation just to prove that this could be a viable strategy for us. And that you know, if, we, if we could execute this fit, you know, effectively, we'd be opening ourselves up to dominating in this SMB market and capturing this whole area that nobody else was really going after. So I think that was a lot of the initial hypothesis that went into us deciding whether or not we should even experiment with self-service. Because we knew that if we did want to go after SMB, you know, with our current team, the unit economics just did not add up to be able to serve these SMB customers at such low contract values and, and so on. Is it fair to assume that it's like standard uh, debate was kind of like the sales team wanted to keep on going like whale hunting or like deer hunting, like the bigger uh ones and like there was like some folks in the organization that saw a strategic advantage uh going after the smb and potentially like growing into mid-market or um or how aligned was the organization towards the fact that there was like a huge opportunity on the smb side yeah so that's, that's interesting i think it was a little bit split where i think on the sales side at the ic level like our sales reps themselves they were turning away a bunch of SMB companies that wanted to buy the platform, but would only buy if they could pay month to month or only buy if they can get like a 50% discount and so on. So we said no to a lot of business and they would have loved to be able to say yes. Um, but on the leadership side, on go-to-market leadership side, I think everyone in that, uh, yeah, on that go-to-market leadership team at the time really was interested in growing into the mid-market, growing the enterprise. And that's what they were hired to do at the beginning. That's where they were sold on. That's where they wanted to take their careers. So I think that there is a little bit of a disconnect between leadership and then the IC level on the go-to-market side. Got it. And, and if I remember correctly, I, I think that was like one of the, one of the really smart uh, things that you folks did internally to avoid this like feeling of cannibalization of starting a free motion was to, um, try and start, you know, having a free product that could be for the people that were DQ'd by, uh, by the reps, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I could speak more about that. Like, I feel like, uh, you know, it was something that we did to balance like internal, you know, politics. But I think that if I were to look back and do something differently, I feel like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but like maybe part of you know, how conservative we were was a bit of a mistake. Um, where we probably could have grew faster, more quickly, if we were a little bit less conservative. Um, but yeah, definitely started by building a self-serve product that had no monetization ability, just to see like, hey, all these people that were DQing, can we put them into some type of product where they're able to retain and continue being a user of Apollo instead of sending them to some of our competitors in the SMB, um, but without cannibalizing a lot of our existing business. Right. 
And I guess like one of the risks that comes to mind when hearing this, like how do you make sure that you're actually building this self-serve version of the product for, uh, you know, an ICP group, right? Because like the risk of build, offering something to people that are being DQ'd is that potentially then you start optimizing for a category of companies that are not, you know, where you don't have product market fit. So how did you um, like make sure to, to not fall in that trap? Yeah, definitely. So when we looked at companies that we wanted to be users of a platform, I think there are like two types of people that we DQ. One would be like, you know, founders from, you know, SaaS startups that just generally didn't want to buy into an annual contract, but they knew how to use modern tools or they were going to use, you know, somewhat similar tools that are, you know, maybe more affordable, um, but they really wanted to use Apollo because it was more advanced than a lot of the other solutions that you can get for free or for a cheaper price. Um, and then there's like this sec second bucket of people at EPDQ where it's like, hey, maybe they're doing things like wanting to reach out to the plumbers in their own town or something or like, you know, it's, it's just a very different, like much more niche use case. Um, and I think when people fit into the former, that's where we really like took a lot of the data. Like when we were doing qualitative interviews and research with people, like we definitely made sure that we're only talking to the people that we felt were part of the core ICP of where we want to go in the future. Um, but definitely, you know, there were times where we would, especially now, we get tons of users that are not necessarily in our ICP um, and people find new use cases for Apollo all the time. Like we get students that are looking for jobs that are trying to find hiring managers and reach out to them and so on. Um, but when we take a look at our quantitative metrics, we're able to slice them by things like persona, company size, industry, so on. We really just look at company size and persona, though. Uh, and then same with, you know, when we're doing qualitative research, we're very specific about who we talk to. Okay. Yeah. So it's very interesting because I could see how like students looking for a job is like you have potentially like someone's going to pay for a month or like use the product. But then once they have a job, they don't necessarily need to, to use the product anymore. So that's where okay, we see a lot of companies kind of trip on that where like if you're not thinking about it the right way, like you were saying of like figuring out, okay, if we split out this like population that's being DQ'd, like where are the actual pools of long-term opportunity rather than just like you know, the, the pools, uh, the pool of users that are in there. Um, one, one question that uh, I think comes up a lot when starting to think about this is like, what, how do you tactically actually like get started building this internally? So I think uh, what, what would be super interesting to dive into is a little bit of the, the make of the team that started this initiative and potentially how it grew over time, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the make of the team was a little bit, it's a little bit wonky where, you know, back then we had one engineering team. Uh, it was like eight engineers total. And then we had one PM, uh, which was like our core PM. And then we had myself, that was a growth PM. And then our CEO would sometimes PM a few projects. And those engineers were shared. So at any point I'd be working with one to four engineers from that team of eight. Um, and I played the role of the product manager, the marketer, the data analyst, the, you know, UX researcher. And then we had one designer as well at the time. Um, so back then we had to be, because we were sharing resources and engineering, every single thing we wanted to build, like we had to sell really hard into, you know, Hey, if we want to fight for, you know, using some of these shared end resources, we need to prove that this thing that we want to build is going to be higher ROI than this thing that like the other PM wants to build or our CEO wants to build. So it was a little bit, um, I, don't, I don't know, it was, a, it was a good 
learning process of like, how do we make sure that we're really prioritizing the highest ROI and the, and the quickest time to value, you know, solutions that, you know, are going to drive the greatest impact in the shortest amount of time. Um, over time, we eventually built our first like full on growth team. Uh, back then it was still just me as like PM marketer, analyst, researcher. And then we had a designer and then we had two full-time engineers fully dedicated to this. And then it grew to three. Um, and that's when we started really taking off and like starting to run like much more higher velocity experiments on the growth side. Um, now we're at the point where we have three growth PMs, six core PMs, but I think all of our product team takes much more of a growth mindset because our entire cultures changed to be a lot more, you know, iterative, to be a lot more hypothesis and learning driven and, and so on. Got it. And, and from a, from a timeline perspective, what, what did it look like? Like what were kind of some of the, the milestones that you hit along the way? And what was the size of the team working on the self-serve uh, initiative at, the, at those times? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, some of the milestones. So the first thing we focused on was activation retention. So we wanted to say like, hey, if we build this self-serviceable product, can we make sure that people can get to the value without ever talking to a human? And can they form a habit around unlocking value from Apollo so that you know, we became, become a bit more ingrained in their day-to-day -day jobs. Um, at that time, we still had the shared, you know, shared team. So it was like me, plus like some of the shared engineers, usually around two to three engineers working on this. Um, once we were able to get to a decent place when it come to, came to NPS of the self-serve platform, activation, retention of the self-serve platform, then we started testing monetization. And again, we were super conservative. So the initial way that we tested monetization was by you know, putting up some landing page. And then when people clicked on it, they get an email from myself and I'd ask for their credit card information. I'd like process it manually in Stripe and then they become a customer. Um, and in the first month we hit 120K ARR actually, which was, you know, as much of our, as our top producing sales reps. Um, so we decided that there's definitely, you know, some opportunity here because this is much more scalable than hiring a bunch of, you know, world-class sales reps. So that's when we ended up shifting a lot more end resources towards this. So I think we had around six at the time towards, uh, and what they were focusing on was unifying our mini self-serve product with our existing product. Because the MPS was better for our self-serve product than it was for our existing product. Uh, and so was the retention, the, the user retention. So we realized that, you know, when we're making improvements on the growth side, if we're going to be building the product to be really good and much more sticky and so on, we might as well have that be part of the same product that our reps are selling. And it actually would make sense from the monetization perspective to figure out a pricing tier where we're kind of going all in um, on PLG. So after that, like, you know, a lot of time spent on some platform work to unify the platforms. Um, after that, we started focusing on acquisition. Uh, then the team scaled back down to like two engineers and again, myself, to build this like product-led SEO product uh, that was used to generate tons of visits. Like we went from 6,000, you know, website visits per month to 2 million uh, after we launched this like product-led SEO product that we did. Um, and once we got to that point, that's when we decided to fully, you know, build a, a self you know, a separate growth team and a growth squad because we knew that we'd always want to be testing hypotheses really quickly on this growth team. And we knew that we had every part of the funnel complete at that point. We had solid activation, decent retention, like looking back on it is terrible uh, compared to where we are now, but you know, it was, it was okay. Uh, and then we also had some monetization and some uh, good acquisition at least. Um, so we felt like now that we have some type of flywheel, let's start putting a team together 
to consistently, you know, and constantly be trying to iterate and figure out where are the highest leverage gaps that we can influence to, you know, really bolster this flywheel. Right. And at that point, like how, how many months into the project are we? Um, so at that point, it was probably nine to 12 months in uh, before we actually built that first full on growth team uh, that it. like where we hired a growth PM that like was not myself as well and so on. Right. And so so in terms like so from from getting started to maybe like seeing the first fairly consistent credit card swipes, like how how long did that process take? Like how many months? Yeah, so once we unified our platforms, um, so I think we started unifying our platform maybe six six months in or so, um, four to six months in. And then once we unified our platforms, uh, after that, I think we were still very conservative with our self-serve unified pricing. So, and I think this was one of the mistakes we made along the way is that we kind of treated it as, you know, we want to make sure rep-driven revenue stays constant or grows but anything we do on self-serve is in addition to that. Um, so at that point, we had conservative pricing. We were still, you know, closing like a hundred grand per month, sometimes two hundred grand a month for a few months. So probably like, um, probably around six, yeah, six to nine months from there. Uh, and then we started realizing that there was a much like our rep-driven revenue was not increasing very, you know, very quickly. Uh, and it also was not uh, being cannibalized too much from the self-serve product. But we realized that from the self-serve product, there was a lot of demand from the user. Like we had tons of free users and there was a lot of demand to be able to move on to a tier that was between, you know, our current self-serve offerings and our, our rep-driven offerings, uh, or sorry, and our free offerings. Mm -hmm. So then we started doing a lot of, you know, research around pricing and started talking to a bunch of users doing like the Van Westendorf and so on to start to figure out, you know, what would optimal pricing look like if we're actually trying to optimize for total revenue rather than optimizing for, you know, rep-driven revenue first and self-serve revenue afterwards. Um, and then once we started, you know, once we conducted the research there, we actually ended up splitting our pricing tiers into having like a $50 a month plan, $100 a month plan, and then custom self-serve like enterprise plans. And we knew what are those features that those enterprise users need that we can put on customs? What are those features that those like, you know, lower paying users need that those, you know, middle ground users like might, uh, you know, or those middle ground users might need that those lower paying users might not need. And how do we figure out what goes on, you know, custom versus pro versus basic and so on. And once we launched that, uh, that's when our self-serve started massively taking off where self-serve started to finally start to bring in more revenue than sales. And I think since then we've gotten more and more bold uh, with our self-serve revenue where we started making really disruptive bets, such as providing unlimited email credits on a plan, which nobody in our space did. And I think part of the reason why nobody in our space did it is because it's a really scary thing to do in the data space where if you use a data credit, if I find someone's email address, I might not have a reason to go back to your platform. So you can only do that if your user retention is really good and you have continuous value that you can deliver to your users. I think at that point, we actually did you know, have that extreme product market fit where people are going to retain, even if they use all their data credits, even if they're fined if they find their entire ICP because they still use us to engage with their uh, prospects and so on. Um, and that's when, you know, self-serve really took off. We went from like 5 million revenue to 
40 million revenue uh, plus. And uh, yeah, I think uh, now PLG definitely kind of comes first in our business. Got it. So really the, even there, there's an interesting element that some of the long-term uh, you know, value drivers of the product actually came from this PLG initiative where one of the challenges that you were looking to solve was how do we, how do we address long-term retention within the product, which led to figure out how are people using it, potentially build features for that uh, longer retention that wouldn't have been as obvious if it was like a, you know, like long-term contract, like two-year contract where almost like nobody cares about retention because until like we're three months before renewal. And so that kind of drove a lot of the, um, the product design for, for the overall product, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's a it's a big miss in the B2B SaaS world where I think a lot of people try to address retention by locking people into annual contracts or multi-year contracts, but that provides no value to the user. And that's just, you know, you know, faking retention in a way. So the fact that we moved to month to month forced us to figure out how do we consistently, you know, provide value for our users. And, you know, we were able to like five to six X our user retention by focusing on that problem. And I think at the time, like when we talked to advisors and stuff for PLG from other companies, they always mentioned that like retention is notoriously hard to move. And it felt like something that we might just not be able to do. Uh, But I think from learning from some of the some of the best practices that like Brian Balfour at Reforge has or you know Andrew Chen and there's a lot of great people in the space that have built frameworks around how to build retention you know how to improve retention uh, and I think that is definitely something that is possible but you have to have the culture within your company to be thinking about retention as how do we improve value for our users rather than how do we make our users keep paying us right uh, and and maybe like what's like one of those frameworks that that was kind of an aha moment for, for you internally where you realized, oh, like this is actually something that makes a ton of sense that we have to build for and ended up yielding higher retention. Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, it's all a data problem where essentially we had to figure out uh, early on, like what are those things, what are those behaviors that if a user takes these behaviors, it's clear that they formed a habit around mm-hmm. using the platform. And that set of behaviors, when they've occur- occurred, like with this frequency and this time period, uh, then they are correlated with longer term retention. Um, so once we identify that, then we start to do everything we can to, you know, because retention is a lagging metric. So then we had to try to figure out how do we do everything to get people to that habit forming moment. And then, you know, a year down the road or two years down the road, what the habit forming moment might be might look different. Once your users are retaining for 12 months instead of six months, now all of a sudden you need to do that analysis again and figure out what's the difference between people that retain for 12 months versus six months, and then continuously trying to set people up in the early days of their usage of your product to get to those core behaviors that end up helping them build a habit around getting value from the product. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and so maybe going back to uh, a little bit of this, uh, um, you know, I, I guess like challenge with, with sales, right? I, I could imagine sales leadership being a little bit worried as they saw you know, the kind of self-serve version of the the product taking on a bigger and bigger portion of the overall company revenue. How, how did the comp plans change for the reps to make sure the reps didn't feel like part of the, you know, that the product was kind of cannibalizing some of their potential revenue and therefore leading them to not hit quota because like people that should have been going through reps should have in, in their mind, we're now going through, you know, credit card uh, payments. 
Yeah. So um, comp plans actually didn't change too much at the rep level, where at the rep level, um, you know, they still had similar comp plans, but we did have to talk through when does something get counted by sales versus when does it get counted by product. And we kind of uh, made it in a way where anytime sales touches a customer and then they convert, uh, you know, and they actually like had an interaction with the customer, talk to them. Uh, then they'll get some credit so that they don't feel so bad about like products stealing their leads or anything, but we'll take some effort on their side. And I think the big shift that we saw in sales is that instead of sales, like trying to reach out to people to hard sell them, instead what we focus them on is how do you talk to some of our users and help them get the value that they can want to get out of our free plans or help them get the value they need to get out of the product so that naturally they'll convert and naturally, you know, you'll get the, you know, you'll get the revenue, you'll get the commission associated with that conversion. Um, on the leadership side, I think that's where it's a bit different, where there was a change for myself at one point where I used to just be comped on self-serve revenue, then I was comped on total revenue, uh, and then was just much more interested in how do we work in unison to actually like, you know, do what's best for our customers. Because a lot of people at the end of the day still do want to talk to customers or still do, do want to talk to a sales team. Uh, and it's helpful for us on the product side to have like sales reps and like humans that can actually go in there and help our, our customers in a way that we can't and relay that feedback back to the product team. So we can figure out how do we eliminate that question from ever happening again? Um, so I think now we're much, much more aligned in that sense. And is, is sales leadership also comped on total revenue or is it still, is it a, uh, a roll up of the like rep, like commissioned kind of revenue? Yeah. So right now, uh, sales leadership's not comped on total revenue. I think back then we had a sales leader. His name is Ramsey Al-Ramahi. Great, great guy. I think he was um, unlike what you'd expect from someone that's being very uh, or would be a sales leader while you're going through a shift from sales to PLG. I think he had a lot of faith in our team um, because every time that we ended up making one of these significant pricing changes, what we realized is that there was a huge influx in inbound leads. There's a huge influx in product-led uh, leads and so on. So it actually ended up not hurting the sales team, but it was just scary. And I think who is the people that were scared the most were the people at the rep level every time we want to make a change. But I think our you know sales leader, Ramsey, definitely did seem to see the vision uh, and he would try to rally his team along. And what we did do on the comp perspective as well is like, if there was some change that we made where it just crushed the sales, you know, sales team's ability to hit their quota, then we gave them quarter leave for that quarter because we know that like it was something that we directly did to, you know, harm their ability to hit their quota. Um, but yeah, and I think now it's a little bit different where our sales team is, you know, our sales leaders are still not comped on like total revenue and it's like rep driven revenue. But me personally, I'm comped on things like how many meetings are our SDR setting. So like I have all sorts of things tying into my metrics, but I have to be very aligned with sales and supporting sales. And I'd like to be as well, because I think true, uh, true like best in class product-led growth means that you have really good self-serviceability, but you also have a really good product-led assist motion, similar to like Figma, who just got you know acquired for 50X multiple. I mean, they had, they had PLG figured out both on the self-serve motion, but also on how they use their sales reps. Yeah, so that makes sense, and, and I think there's um, there's there's a very large trend uh, going on right now with like you know product leaders more and more you know being accountable for uh, a revenue number and even like starting to be accountable for like higher level uh, revenue numbers, not just self serve. And I think that's a it's a really good uh, um, alignment factor, and I think it's it's one that's very often 
overlooked within organizations that it, it, cre it can create a lot of conflict. And I, I love the fact that you folks were thinking about saying, okay, if a rep interacted with someone who ended up converting, then we're going to consider this as a sales assist and we're going to mark the revenue, which also changes the dynamic where the rep doesn't feel like they necessarily have to sell. Because if the sell is going to happen through the product, they're still going to get comped on it. And so then it becomes more about, okay, if I look at the people that are stuck, how can I help them get unstuck? Because that actually unlocks a much bigger pool of potential um, revenue that they get comped for. Um, and at the same time, then it also like gives them a, an incentive to work hand in hand with the product, understand like, you know, what is like good onboarding? Like how do people get value from the product and how do I help, you know, figure out these right touch points rather than either focusing on the last mile of like swiping people's credit card uh, and things like that, which I think is a, I think it's a really, really smart approach and it's, it's awesome to see that it, uh, it paid dividends for, uh, for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I think one other thing was uh, chat support. So like, you know, having people, having some of our sales team, we built out our like chat sales team where now we have people like when we realized from product behaviors that people were on this page, maybe for a little bit long or they set up a sequence, but never sent it or things of that nature. We just try to figure out where are all those points where people are getting blocked and how do we proactively pop up a chat with one of our sales reps in it through, it used to be Drift, now we use Intercom. Um, but to proactively start helping our users where they're at rather than making them get on calls as well. And I think that's been tremendously successful for our product-led approach. What's the, uh, have you have you seen a shift in DNA of successful SDRs as you've gone through this transformation? And and maybe now what's kind of the um, the DNA of, of some of the you know, highest performing uh, reps within the team? Yeah, so it's hard to say about like a shift in DNA and who's going to be most successful. Because I think the from the soft skills perspective, it still takes, you know, um, okay, so I think it was easier to be really successful back in the day when everyone was reaching out to cold accounts uh, and they had like a similar talk track for every single account, um, you know, and the best reps would do extra research and would try to really understand the account understand their buyer and use that to sell to them strategically, use that to reach out to the right people based on the information they're gathering from, you know, maybe some ICs or end users that they're talking to and so on. Um, but even like, you know, people that weren't doing that level of research were able to have some level of success because every account looked relatively the same. I think now it's probably a little bit harder for our sales team or our SDR team, because a lot of that, um, a lot of the things that, you know, anyone would have been able to do, we've like kind of completely automated so SDRs don't really get as much, you know, um, get as many of those like relatively easier meetings to get now uh, because we have emails that go out automatically from our AEs to kind of generate their own pipeline and, and so on. Um, but one of the main things that our SDR team doesn't need to do now is be really strategic about when you have this account that has you know, a lot of free users engaging in these different behaviors, how do you use all that to tell the right story for that customer? And how do you figure out who do you reach out to in what order from that account and what is the right message for those people based on what you know about their product, you know, behaviors and so on. So I think, um, you know, it definitely takes a lot more of a you know, bespoke approach to, to working each count today than it did before to, to really excel. Got it. Uh, that makes sense. And that's, and what I'm hearing is like the, one of the core reasons for that is that now there's just this like, vast amount of product usage data within the account that's 
available and kind of required for them to be relevant when they're reaching out rather than reaching out to a cold account where the information is basically just like the org structure and the type of company they are. And so there's a lot more nuance to add in there because like people are doing stuff in the product. And if you don't reference that in the right way, then it kind of sounds tone deaf. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly it. And um, actually right now we're working on building both a you know feature within our product as well as like I'm literally working on like building the strategy plus like some of the messaging to automatically figure out, hey, what are the top product signals you know, for this account? And who are the top users and that are managers or ICs and who are the top non-user you know, non managers and ICs and how do you automatically add the right people into the right you know, campaigns and based on the data that you have on them, automatically figure out what is the top thing to use for personalization and how do you write the right message that's automatically personally, you know, personalized and so on to go out, you know, to the right people at the right time for each one of our free accounts. So um, definitely, you know, while it is a pain point today, uh, this is something that we're trying to solve for from the product perspective, because it is a natural like we use our own product for our SDR teams prospecting. Um, so we figure if we can solve that problem for ourselves, uh, hopefully we can solve it for a lot of other product -led companies in the future as well. That makes sense. Um, and and maybe one kind of last question on, on this journey that you've been through, like have, I mean, I'm sure there have been things that haven't worked out the way you anticipated. Um, what is maybe like one, you know, initiative that, that didn't work out uh, that would be interesting to share? Cause like, it's likely that someone else is going to try that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So so honestly, yeah, we've had a pretty consistent track record of success. And I think like, you know, over time, and I think that it did take some failed experiments to get there where, you know, from failed experiments, you generate learnings that would help us, you know, become more successful by pivoting whatever we're going to do down the road. Um, but I think one of the, you know, biggest things I could think of that didn't work well when we first is, you know, when we first set up our self-serve pricing in a way to like maximize rep-driven revenue while just adding on that self-serve revenue from people that sales couldn't convert. Uh, and the reason why is because I think there was a good like six month period where our self-serve revenue was okay. And our revenue growth total was growing like not that, not, not that great, like definitely not something that we'd be excited about. Like maybe going from five mil to six mil within you know a couple of months or so. So it definitely wasn't that great. And, uh, you know, I think some of the magic behind PLG, like, is the scalability. It is the amount, you know, ability to gain, you know, massive amounts of ma uh, market share relatively quickly. And it is being able to take an experiment-driven, like, systematic approach to influencing your core metrics that, you know, at the end of the day will influence your, your top-line revenue. Um, so it, it wasn't, like, terrible. Like, we did start growing, but... Once we gained the trust from our entire company to start taking bolder bets with pricing, that's when, you know, the rising sea kind of lifted all boats where self-serve revenue started taking off tremendously, but so did rep-driven revenue. Rep-driven revenue, like 2x, 3x. And it's not like it was because we made tremendous changes to the amount of reps on our team, but it's because we, have, we saw tremendous changes in the demand for our product uh, and the positioning of our product in the market space. People were really grateful to have something that provided them with so much value um, for free and they loved the product, like using the product itself because we built it for our users and so on. So I think once we really went all in in PLG, that's when we got a lot of the benefit from it. But there was a good period of time where it seemed like 
we're never going to be able to do that. And we're always going to have to, you know, think of self-serve as like secondary to sales. But in reality, once self-serve started taking on way more revenue than sales, and once we actually optimized for sales, you know, self-serve first, that was the way to truly unlock the potential behind sales as well. That was how we ended up doubling and tripling rep-driven revenue is by focusing on self-serve first, which is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, but I think that was definitely the what I think of as like the biggest mistake that in hindsight is more clear, but definitely seemed like one of the scariest things we could possibly do at the time. Um, and one other, I guess, insight I'll give into that is we did build this pretty robust um, experimentation system for ourselves to split test pricing. Uh, and I think that's what gave us the confidence to be able to make some of these changes because whenever we rolled out one of these new pricing changes, it would be a split test. And then we were able to prove with data that there was something better about this change uh, and then go back to the sales team, like bring them on board afterwards. Makes sense. Um, so before before we end, I wanted to jump into my, my favorite section, the quick fire round where like the goal is to answer like ideally uh, under a minute and and hopefully with some some hot takes there. Um, so on in a PLG motion, uh, should SDRs report to marketing or to sales? Yeah, I think um, honestly, okay. So yeah, I think personally SDRs need to collaborate a lot with marketing and sales. Personally, I prefer them with sales because I think the feedback loop between SDR and sales needs to be tighter, faster, and more frequent than the feedback loop between marketing and sales development. So for example, like if outbound deals aren't closing, how do we solve that problem? If outbound deals have lower ACV or if outbound you know, meetings aren't qualified, how do we solve that problem? I think that what I see in some organizations when they're, you know, when SDRs are just focused on pipeline is that, you know, the SDR team is able to, you know, generate a ton of meetings. Those meetings aren't actually translating into revenue. And I think that when these teams are connected with sales, you figure out those things really quickly because everyone's aligned to the same number and your SDRs and AEs are constantly talking. And, and one other thing is, I think truly for outbound to be successful, AEs need to tailor their calls based on what the SDR said or based on the campaign that like led them to you know actually getting the call in the first place. Uh, and I think that that is just easier to do when SDRs are more tightly aligned with AEs and tightly aligned with sales for training Makes and sense. so on. And and for the reps that are working the the product led uh, accounts or leads, or is that what you you mean by outbound? Or do you have a different take on the the folks that are working on product led? Uh, leads oh sorry yeah I, I would i would count those as like the the same bucket um because okay. at the end of the day like they're running campaigns sometimes it's to people that are free users or free accounts sometimes it's to people that aren't but regardless you still need to have the same type feedback loop for the same reasons of you know making sure you're actually able to turn these into revenue and figuring out the blockers to that as soon as possible makes sense um and question in a related topic, who uh, owns writing the, the product-led email sequences? So the, the, the product-led sales email sequences that the reps are going to send, so like product, sales, marketing. Yeah, who, what would be the, the best people to write those? Yeah, that's an interesting one. <laughs> I, think it, uh, I think it definitely depends on the talent that you have in your company because I think it takes someone that is able to realize the full potential of the customer journey and is able to be systematic, but also creative around how to optimize each touch point. So, you know, for Apollo, I set up all of our original like product-led sales, like emails, like, uh, but then we hand it off to sales eventually. And now we're actually handing it back off to me 
where I'm setting up some of our sequences and writing some of our messaging. I think the idea is for me to create the framework and write some of our messaging, but then teach others how to write messaging in a similar way. But I think that one of the difficulties is, you know, on the product side, we have a very full picture of what are all the levers that we could potentially use for personalization? What are all the blockers and all the parts of the customer journey that we'd want to interject? And what are the things we'd want to say at that time? A lot of the time on the product side, though, you don't get the creativity and you don't have people that are really good at message writing. So I think that if your org looks like that, then you should definitely attach someone from product to be able to help with understanding where the high yield points that you can touch your customers. But then, you know, pairing them with someone that's going to be able to be really good at creating the right messaging for those points. And then you also need someone that's going to be able to be more like operational thinker to be able to automate like the whole framework. Because then one issue that sometimes people run into is, if I'm sending an email when someone visits the pricing page, but I'm also sending an email when someone invites a user, and I'm also sending an email when this other thing happens, am I sending someone three emails within the same hour and so on? So you have to create some type of hierarchy and figure out the right rules of engagement and you know, create the framework behind how are you going to you know, send people the right emails at the right time, but without bombarding them and you know, making sure that you're not uh, you know, oversaturating them with your emails either. Right. Makes sense. Uh, and last one, a bit of a curveball. Uh, what's your favorite Nick Cage movie? Favorite Nick Cage movie? I, I haven't seen a Nick Cage movie in a long time. So I think the only one I could think about is uh, probably that like archaeologist one. Uh, I totally forgot what it's called. Nash is it uh, National but, Treasure? Yeah, I think it's National Treasure. Um, I think to be honest, uh, maybe this is a little controversial, but when I was younger, I never really liked Nick Cage too much. Kind of creeped me out sometimes. I don't know why. Um, but not the, not the biggest fan, personally. Awesome. Well, Christian, thanks a ton for, for joining us, sharing a ton of really, really relevant knowledge. If people want to follow up or maybe like do a deep dive into anything that you covered today, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, I think reaching out on LinkedIn is good. Um, yeah, and gen generally, uh, if you put a little note in there, then I'm able to figure out that like here's someone that I should add. Uh, otherwise, sometimes I'll just not realize and, you know, not kind of skip someone's advice. So LinkedIn uh, is definitely the right way. Okay. LinkedIn with the promo code uh, Matskudu PLG confessions and, and <laughs> likely to get an answer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thanks a ton for, for joining us, for sharing a ton of knowledge and yeah, like the experience of going through that, you know, initial PLG um, introduction to a, a sales led environment. And yeah, hopefully uh, you'll hear from a couple of folks. I know this is like such a hot topic that I, I assume people are going to be reaching out. And uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, talking to you again. And for everyone listening, stay tuned for the next ones, which are going to be as amazing as this one. And do reach out to Christian because uh, he has a lot more uh, information and knowledge to share and definitely someone to be uh, connected with. So thanks a ton and we'll see you next time.